I'm Carrie, And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two different friends, Amy is like a golden retriever, and I am like a grumpy cat, talk about all the amazing advantages that come from living a bookish life. Each week we do a deep dive Q&A with a book lover, an author, awesome, a bookseller, bingo, a member of a book club, marvelous. We chat with bibliophiles from all over about why stories are integral to who they are. April is National Poetry Month, and whether you love poetry or not, you've likely heard of poet laureates. You may not know what that distinction means, however. There are all kinds of poet laureates, of countries, or states, of cities, or of even smaller areas. A poet laureate is appointed by a head of government for her or his accomplishments and may publish poems for special state occasions. It is an honor that comes with a lot of flexibility. In this week's episode, we chat with Luisa A. Igloria, a native of the Philippines who came to the U.S. to attend graduate school and is one of only four poet laureates of color for the state of Virginia. She was appointed to the position right as COVID took over our lives in 2020, and she talks to us about the three cornerstone projects she wanted to launch in order to make poetry a larger part of the community. But first... Carrie, you are back from Ecuador on your big adventure. I am back. I survived. Although there was a boat ride where I thought I might not (laughs) survive. (laughs) It was rough. That part was rough and very unpleasant. But the rest of it was pretty awesome. I got to see so many cool things. I spent most of the time not believing that I was there. So the downer of the trip was that you got incredibly motion sick on a two-hour boat ride. Yes. Correct. And yes, when I say I got so sick, I was in bed the rest of the day. That's sick. So the rest of the group went on to another of the Galapagos Islands. I opted to stay there because they were going to take a t- another two-hour boat ride over to this island. And then the day after that, take another two-hour boat ride back. And I did not think that I could do that. So I only saw two of the four Galapagos Islands that are inhabited by people. But the way I look at it, the fact that I got to go at all was gravy, you know. So then what would you say the high point of your trip was? Oh, gosh. Uh, There were a lot of them. I mean, one of them was we were on San Cristobal Island and we walked to La Liberia Beach and the water was gorgeous and there's dark black lava rocks everywhere and there was a a sea lion just posing in the water for us i mean just the the picture i took looks like something you would see in a national geographic magazine i know you didn't get to see the blue-footed booby like we had talked about i did not yeah that was on uh, la isabella and I, i didn't get to go there you know actually the sea lions were probably the most enjoyable just because they're so funny. Um, you know, funny. I, I mean, most of the animals that you see on the Galapagos are, you know, turtles, birds, lizards. And so I don't know. I just think maybe because sea lions are mammals, they're just a little bit more funny, I guess. Um, and so on San Cristobal, they were up on the beach just at like hundreds of them and making these horrible <laughs> The sea lions make horrible noises. They're like, you know. We saw them last summer in La Jolla outside San Diego, and I could just sit there and watch them for hours because they're so completely entertaining, you know, and they're in these family groups or cliques. I'm not exactly sure what you say, but there's like one male and lots of females, and there's lots of like little juveniles, and they're sort of wrestling and playing and 
But I also love seeing Quito. The, you know, we saw this beautiful church, La Campaña de Jesús. If you look it up, we, you aren't allowed to take pictures inside, but the entire inside of the church is gold. Oh. I mean, it is absolutely stunning, mind-blowing. And so that that's in Quito. You know, we went up to uh, Otavalo and shopped at the largest indigenous market in the country. And that was amazing to be driving through the, the Andes. So just so many things to see. So many things that I never dreamed that I would see. Back to the sea lion for a moment. There's a funny picture that if you will permit me, I might post our Instagram page of when you got off that horrible, horrible boat ride. And there was like a bench that was right next to the dock. And on one side of the bench is a big, huge sea lion laying long ways on the bench. And on the other side is you. Yes. I was I was very angry that that sea lion, because I really needed to lie down. And that sea lion was on the closest side where I was. Had I had more energy, I may have been tempted to roll him off. But I was on one side. Yeah not able to stand and, uh, and wishing that I would die. And the sea lion, I don't know. I don't know how he felt if he was wishing he would die, but anyway, (laughs) it's, it's, it's a picture for the ages. I'll tell you that. The other picture that you posted just today that made me cringe a little bit is that they do as a delicacy, sometimes eat Guinea pig. And there is a picture of, I think, fried Guinea pig on your page, which I then had to forward to friend of the show, who was a guest of ours, who has a guinea pig that she loves so much it has its own instagram page and you know her guinea pig estelle was not a fan yeah i can understand that well it's a one and done thing i mean i just wanted to say that i I had this tiny little piece did it taste like chicken no it tasted more like kind of like fatty pork oh okay but i'm i'm not a huge meat lover i'd miss pepperoni on pizza but otherwise i could probably be a vegetarian I did it just to be able to say that I'd done it and freak everybody out, you know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, when we went to Costa Rica years ago, I ate termites. That was sort of my yeah. thing. Yeah. Because you can eat termites and they're a little bit spicy. They have sort of a woody, spicy taste to them. Yeah. And so, protein. It's protein. Protein. That's right. So, That's right. While I was off in South America, you were doing some poetry reading. I was. I bought our guest Louisa's most recent collection of poetry called Maps for Migrants and Ghosts. And the very first poem of the book blew me away and is so perfect for right now because it's about spring, but it's also, I don't know, it reminded me a little bit of um, what's going on in Ukraine. And if you will bear with me, I want to read this poem just because I think it's really awesome. Uh, It comes from her book Maps for Migrants and Ghosts. She has 14 books of poetry. So the name of this poem is called Song of Meridians. It's spring, but in other places it's not. Yet spring, it's dry or wet with monsoon, or it is why is there still snow on the ground? It's strange and high, that mechanical whine in the night coming from somewhere beyond the ceiling. It's Wednesday, and in another place already Thursday, it's night, though here it is still half past noon. And look at the newspaper. On the upper left, a woman in a pale peach dress is smiling and waving her hand. On the bottom right, there's a picture of cities burning. It's spring, or whatever season it is for laughter, 
or slaughter, a difference of one letter between one state of being and another. It's that time when cows and sheep are calving, when blood is the marker for a life breaking away or maybe just breaking. So when I read that, it just made me think about how we're all sort of going about our lives here in spring and flowers are blooming and coming out. And yet in the Ukraine, people are dying and things are a mess. Very nice. I love that the word play on laughter and slaughter. That's brilliant. Let's talk to Louisa. Louisa A. Gloria, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's lovely to be on your show. I'm so honored to have you on our show. You have written 15 books of poetry, and you're the recipient of the May Swinson Prize and the first recipient of the world's first major eco-poetry award. So it's such an honor to be able to chat with you. You, among other things, are also the 20th Poet Laureate of Virginia, a position that was first established in the state in 1936. So tell us a little bit about what it means to be a Poet Laureate. How does someone become a Poet Laureate? I found out I was on the short list uh, for being considered for Poet Laureate in May of 2020. And at that point, I looked at the short list names, and there were some very venerable <laughs> names in poetry from the state of Virginia there. And so I kind of said to myself in my head, okay, that's nice. Uh, I made it this far, and I didn't think about it again. But uh, in July, uh, I got word of the appointment, and that was like, holy cow, it's real. So (laughs) (laughs) uh, I'm very pleased, especially since I am an immigrant. I'm a woman of color. I am only the fourth poet laureate of color in the state of Virginia. I mean, the great Rita Daub preceded us who count ourselves poet laureates of color in Virginia. And then there's Sophia Starnes, who is Filipina, Spanish, American poet. And then there's my former colleague, he's retired now, Tim Siebels, and then there's myself. So the process is the Poetry Society of Virginia gathers nominations for the position And then they drop a shortlist, which they forward to the office of governor. And the appointment comes from there. And I've always been told, even after my appointment, oh, it's an honorary position. Some people say you don't even have to do anything. You don't even have to write any poetry, which is a little weird. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But it's good to think about how, as you mentioned, this position was created or formalized through an act of government. And in Virginia, it was codified in 1997. And what it means to me, too, is that it would seem to send the message that poetry and the arts are recognized as important to civic and social well-being, which I also believe in because poetry and the arts, like community, you know, they have empathy as their cornerstone. We first need to imagine in order to create conditions for experiencing freedom and possibility and change in our lives. And so the language of poetry taps into those places that are very difficult to express otherwise. And I think that's where we are most human. So it means a lot to me that I have this opportunity to be of service to others through poetry, which is one of my favorite things, of course. You know, you said you didn't, with this position, you don't technically have to do anything. So are the tasks and the and the projects you've developed, have those been just allowed you to be creative and, and think up some cool ways to share poetry in the state? 
Yeah, uh, and I was pondering that too uh, for a while. How do I get to do so much? And you know, a lot is sort of expected of you, even if those expectations are not necessarily voiced, but uh, you know, you hear them in your head, right? <laughs> <laughs> And then you kind of set yourself to certain tasks. But I also applied for one of the Academy of American Poets, Poet Laureate Fellowships. And this is a nationwide program offered to all poets laureate, either at the county level or the state level, or, you know, I think there are poets laureate of cities also. So it just seems like there's all of these different ways to be a poet laureate. And I'm still, I I kind of feel like it's sort of like a mysterious process, how these things come into being, but uh, regardless, so anyone who is poet laureate can apply for these um, fairly new uh, opportunities from the Academy of American Poets. And they give you a chunk of money, but uh, the chunk of money is supposed to go into development of public centered poetry projects. Now, since in the state of Virginia, because that's not true in other places, in the state of Virginia, the poet laureate position has never come with any stipend or honorarium, believe it or not, so zero funds. So I've had friends in the Poetry Society of Virginia who have been poets laureate before say, yeah, you know, I had to pay for my own gas and, you know, put up myself in a hotel and my own money, but I I wanted to go out there and do things with more people in the state go to schools, visit organizations that are dedicated to the arts and so forth. But so I had the good luck of being one of 23 Poet Laureate Fellowship recipients in 2021. And it has made a real difference in my ability to carry out these projects. Well, it's interesting because I think most people, when they think of a Poet Laureate, they think of the one that's the poet laureate of the United States or mm-hmm. maybe of their state. I think a lot of people don't even know that their state has a poet laureate, mm-hmm. but there also seems to be now poet laureates for cities. And, and you touched on that a little bit. And also, you know, youth poet laureates. And uh. Amanda Gorman created that wonderful poem for Joe Biden's inauguration last yeah. year. And, and she's sort of a sensation now. Yeah. And so I'm wondering what your thoughts on the role of po- poet laureates you know, even in, in these smaller roles, what their role is on a, on a larger scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're absolutely right that Amanda Gorman sort of suddenly lit up on uh, the stage of poetry, if you will, in a suddenly very, very bright way. And I still can see her in my mind, that uh, wonderful yellow outfit that she had on. Yeah. She's just a ray of sunshine. And uh, I think people have really been hungering for a lot more of this sense of being connected to others. And I think poetry is helping to bridge that. I think poetry has this ability to help us like tap into those things that are so important. And that, you know, the pandemic time, we are into our third year and there's been so much grieving. There's been so much of this sense of trauma and isolation that I think people have suddenly realized that poetry has been there all along, really. But we somehow feel like we need it more than ever today. So I also like the idea of youth poet laureates. Uh, I think in Amanda Gorman's case and in the National Youth Poet Laureate Program, I believe uh, there's an organization in New York called Urban Word New York, which I think gathers the uh, different state nominations and then they uh, have them 
I guess, submit materials and maybe even perform their poetry. And, and that leads to the national poetry naming or appointment. So in Hampton Roads, which is here where I live, there is also another organization that is similar to Urban Word New York, and I think they do work with them too. It's called Teens with a Purpose. And in fact, they're getting ready to do this program where we're going to go listen to youth poet laureate applicants for Hampton Roads come on stage and read some of their work and tell us a little something about what they do as poets and what they would like to do as youth poet laureates. So it's very exciting. Well, I'm wondering about that because you have a program called Youth Poets in the Community. And so is that related to the no. teens with a purpose? No, it's, it's called Young Poets in the Community. And under my application for a Poet Laureate Fellowship, like I said, we were required to dream up poetry projects that had a public focus or a public orientation. So the Young Poets in the Community project that I dreamed up uh, is one of, of my cornerstone projects as Poet Laureate with the help of the Poetry Fellowship from the Academy. So the Young Poets in the Community has been envisioned as a kind of poetry ambassadorship program, if you will. So this is a very first time it's been offered. And I had a lot of help from the Poetry Society of Virginia because they have members in all throughout the, the different regions of Virginia. And what I did was form a committee. I uh, We discussed what we were looking for. And it's similar to what I'm being asked to do uh, with my Poet Laureate Fellowship that is, again, to kind of center poetry in the public eye, do something that has an effect on more than just you as an individual writer or your individual or immediate environment to try and reach out to more in the community or maybe other kinds of communities that you may not have been able to reach before. So that's the whole idea. Poetry is a way of reaching out to others. So uh, these young poets were asked to submit not only a sample of their writing, but they were also asked to submit a proposal. And I told them, no matter how big or small, it doesn't have to be grand. It doesn't have to involve you trotting all over the state and doing a young poet Thing equivalent of what I'm trying to do, but you know, just really thinking of your community, who or what those are, and trying to see how you can bring poetry into that setting. So it's very exciting to see there are 24 young poets we selected for this first cohort of young poets in the community, and their projects are all unique. All of them have been asked to document their projects as they're carried out to completion. And my plan is to feature each one of them as they, they come up to completion on my website. I can describe some of the projects. For instance, one of the elementary school winners uh, wants to hold a poetry podcast, just like you have, <laughs> in which he wants to pair an older or more experienced poet that he will seek out either in the community or maybe write them and see if they're open to it. And he'll pair this poet with a young poet or student in the schools. And he wants them to read poetry as well as talk a little bit about how they can use poetry to make a difference in their community. So it's really, you know, a fun thing for him to do too. Uh, and he's very excited about that. Also, I had elementary, uh, middle school, high school, and college. Another young elementary school poet is creating what she called a poetry path on her school grounds. 
and uh, she wanted to have students in her school read Naomi She Had Nice poem, The Blue Bucket, and then they will write poems about what fills up their own bucket, and she's going to arrange these in a path, you know, mindfully so that people can have the experience of reading through these buckets and going around the school with that intention of reading poetry. So uh, it's so fun to think about you know, what that's going to do and how uh, people will be involved and interactive with these things. A middle school young poet says that she wants to do a poetry collage on this big brick wall at her school grounds. One other poet wants to coordinate with her local library to hold workshops with students, and together they will write what she calls poetry remixes based on more well-known poems centering on identity, and just just so many others. There's I, I need to mention one more. Uh, one student here, actually in Norfolk, is creating a buddy program that pairs local high school students with refugee children who are interested in language arts, and her goal is to encourage poetry as a means of exchanging stories and forming friendships. So some of what they've thought about, I was like, I, I would never have thought about that myself. That's so great. I know. I'm kind of blown away by all these awesome ideas that these kids had. And I, I've been following you on Instagram, and I've been seeing you feature some of the poets, but I had no idea that there were elementary school students. There are, yes. yes. That's, that's amazing. With discussing some of these young poets, I'm curious, how did you start to love words? And when did that love of words transition to actual poet for you personally? Um, I learned to read, I guess, by the age of three. And I think, you know, being exposed to reading and writing from a young age, my family loved books and reading and always tried to encourage exposure to the arts and to cultural events through my early childhood. I mean, we were ordinary family, middle class, but my father worked in local government for a time. I don't know how, but he would always manage to get complimentary tickets of one sort or another from friends and colleagues. And they were either to like theater productions or concerts and things like that. And they would take me to everything. I remember them taking me out of school early to watch a movie premiere. It it was for Showboat. I'm I'm showing my age. (laughs) (laughs) And my parents wanted me to watch it. Things like that, I think, just to encourage uh, the love of the arts But I like to say this story. In my freshman year of college, my English teachers kidnapped me for life. (laughs) (laughs) Convinced me that an English and literature degree uh, was good for me. I know this is a long-winded way of answering your question, but uh, it's hard to believe that when I look back at some memories, I actually nearly failed a literature test on metaphor in Mm -hmm. high school. So that's very weird. And It wasn't until I was done with college and starting out as a young instructor that my former professors and now colleagues convinced me that the poetry I was writing was ready, whatever that meant. And by that, I think they meant I should send out my work to publications and to contests. And so I entered a folio of my poems to the Carlos Palanca Awards for Literature, which is, I guess, considered the most prestigious of literary awards in the Philippines at their urging. And to my great shock, I won first prize. I was 21. And oh those poems actually grew into my first published book of poems, Cartography, 
this is uh, from a press in Manila called Anvil. And the book also went on to win a National Book Award from the Manila Critics Circle. So no pressure, right? And after <laughs> But so I can't specifically pinpoint a time, but I think I've always, always loved books and reading and words. And, you know, years went on and I felt like I was becoming more attuned to the sound of my own voice. I felt like this was really what I wanted to do. So were you writing in English? Yes, I I, okay. Well, let me just say that I came to awareness of three languages simultaneously. So English is one of them. Ilocano is another one of them. And that is the language spoken in the northern part of the Philippines where uh, we made our home. And then there's Tagalog or Filipino, which you probably are aware of, which is supposedly the national lingua franca in the Philippines. Uh, I mean, there are still debates over that, but we won't get into that here. So, (laughs) but anyway, uh, the school I went to in my youth uh, was run by Belgian nuns and priests. And they themselves, as I realize now, were also, I guess, what you might call diasporic individuals. They had left their home country, which was most of them were from Belgium, and they had come to a country like the Philippines in order to follow their own vocation. So there I was with other kids like me in this school, and there was an English-only rule in this school, except when we had uh, the specific subjects that we had to take in Filipino or in the Filipino language or in literature. We were fined five centavos for any word that we spoke in what they called the dialect or in the vernacular. So, of course, I learned my English very well, right? (laughs) I was just wondering, you know, when you were talking about your experience growing up and, you know, writing more as, as you got older, I just wondered whether having exposure to other languages sort of influenced that ability to write lyrically, you know, and in the way that poetry is created. Yeah, 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 of course. And I think you're absolutely right also in that regard. And I was going to say earlier too, when I was talking about being exposed to three languages simultaneously, pretty much, I learned them all at the same time. And so people talk to me sometimes and they say, why don't you write in your first language? And I'm like, can't I consider English one of my first languages? <laughs> because, you know, I learned it at the same time as my other languages. So in a way, I can make a claim on that, can't I? Mm-hmm. And there's so many Englishes spoken around the world. And, you know, who's to say that Englishes around the world are not as valid as the supposed, you know, the English that is spoken here. Even here, there are so many varieties of spoken and written English. But yeah, I think the ability to have uh, the sound of different languages in one's head or in one's life, I think, is a plus. Just this morning, uh, I got a message from a new friend I'd made on social media, and she had seen one of my readings in which one other panel member said something about writers who use a different tongue to uh, make sure that they were translating well what they were trying to say for other kinds of readers. Like instead of using, let's say, a Filipino or Ilocano word for a thing, I should try to find the English equivalent so that audiences are not tripped up, supposedly. But I don't believe necessarily in the idea of that kind of universal reader. I think that 
you know, the languages that are organic to any artist, any writer, should be things that they are able to use in their work without apology. And for the reader to meet them at least halfway. So if you think, for instance, about, you know, people like me or people from minority cultures or minority communities who have had to, you know, find a designation in in a place like, okay, uh, English as a second language or second language learner or second language uh, writer or reader, we've always had to accommodate our experiences in these fields to what is considered the norm or the template. But I think that some of those things are changing. I think that many writers, many artists are also trying to reclaim their agency in using what they find to be, you know, organic to their experience. So I feel like I'm not going to translate this word. (laughs) I'm going to use it because I do use it in my vocabulary, in my experience. And Mm -hmm. if other people want to find out more about it, that is an invitation instead of a hindrance to understanding. You're also a professor at Old Dominion University, so you teach students. But I read a quote where you said that you often tell your students that poetry is a form of technology. Mm. Um, It's encoding the human experience in language. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you think about uh, how literatures globally, where they came from, a lot of global literatures at first you know, came from an oral tradition. I'm not saying that oral traditions are are gone or are dead. In fact, they're thriving again in different ways in this environment. But what we understand as technology, which is a sort of means to facilitate, right? Uh, Usually we think of that as a speedier means to facilitate and transmit knowledge or uh, how to do things. And you think about things like epics, which were passed from mouth to mouth, forming that oral tradition. And now we have things like uh, the Greek epics or epics in other languages and other global traditions. I mean, wasn't that a form of virality, if you want to call it that? Right. It spread, it proliferated, and people remembered the words and They didn't write them down, but they remembered. So that, I think, is an awesome example of poetry being a kind of technology. I mean, we can read those words today because there was such a thing as that sort of form of technology uh, and virality at at that time. Talking about how there were cornerstones to what you wanted to achieve as Poet Laureate. Mm -hmm. And one of them, in addition to the the young poets in the community, is your poetry postcard project uh, mm-hmm. that's going on this spring. So can you describe to us what the poetry postcard project is? Yeah, sure. And I'm very excited because I'm getting to that point where I think I'm seeing uh, some of the last bits trickle into me through the mail. <laughs> and again, it comes from this idea of Maybe some of it is self-centered. During this period of strange isolation, the pandemic, we can't do things in the ways we used to do. On my website, where I describe the project, I use words like or phrases like uh, questions to invite people like, are you feeling like me? Are you feeling stunned by, you know, what we've had to confront every day? for the last how many years, and that anxiety about so many different things from climate change, from all the effects of the pandemic. It's like this wilderness that we are facing, and it's this 
climate where I look for connection. And so I love receiving mail, snail mail. And I realized that I haven't been doing that for the longest time either. And I have all this, these boxes of unused stationery. I have postcards from places I traveled to that are just sitting there. And I have a friend who is very faithful in sending me letters and postcards in, in her own handwriting. And I, I thought to myself, well, I crave that. It's like craving the sound of a human voice, a hug, a touch. And so I, I wanted to float that idea out there that we would write poetry postcards that we took time to sit down and uh, maybe assess what is immediately around us, uh, not in any formal way, but just, you know, that small pleasure, almost nothing perhaps, but to use this as a way of wanting to send out signals of life, <laughs> proof of life. <laughs> Hey, I'm here. And this is what it's like in my immediate environment. So I also thought that it would be a great opportunity. I'm very interested in the themes of uh, climate change and related issues of um, the environment. And so I wanted to hear about where these postcards were coming from and what people hoped and what they think they can do, how, how they want to imagine this place where they're in for the future. And it's just very simple, just those things. No other formal restrictions they could write in whatever form, but, you know, send me poems, send them on a postcard, do some art with it. You know, I've been receiving wonderful collages. I've been receiving things that people painted over or made original postcards. And it's just, just so wonderful getting them in the mail. And I'm getting ready to take photographs of all of them put them up on my website soon and I will choose 30 for April and release, you know, one close-up picture of the postcard and the poem for every day in National Poetry Month. How many postcards do you think you've received? I think now probably over a hundred. Oh, that's wow. awesome. I love that project. Carrie has a special place in her heart for postcards. So I thought she'd particularly like that project. I do. I do like it. And I was looking, you have a couple pictures on your website. So I was yeah, looking yeah. at those. So I'm excited to see the the other ones that end yeah. up being posted. Yeah. I'm a little behind on, you know, keeping up with all the correspondence and all the, you know, updates because I don't have an assistant. It's just <laughs> me. What's the third project that you wanted to complete? Okay, so the other one I'm doing with a lot of help from people at Old Dominion University, this project in which uh, we are trying to get information from all across the state from poets in order to build a Virginia Poets database as a literary and educational resource. So this is not something that should be interpreted as any form of gatekeeping. I certainly do not want to make this interpreted as a, a place that holds only certain types of information from certain types of poets, because I would like to actually see more diversity, a, a way to reflect uh, the rich diversity of different kinds of poets that we have in, in Virginia. So that's the goal. And I've been able to launch it and it, we're doing it through the Digital Commons platform at Old Dominion's Perry Library. And it started, and again, it's going to be a little bit of a rough start because I only have a part-time student assistant for that particular project. 
and we're going to be getting, I hope, more submissions from across the state. So I invite people to take a look at uh, my website where I describe that, where I put links to how you can get to it. And this is for you if you are a poet in Virginia and you fit all those categories that we described that we would like to see. I hope you will submit your information to the database. About the eco-poetry, you won the Resurgence Poetry Prize, which honors Mm -hmm. Mm eco-poetry. And you have said that, you know, that's an important thing to you and even within your poetry postcard project. So describe to someone who may not exactly understand what that is. What is eco-poetry? And is it something that you consider a sizable portion of your poetry? I guess I would even before the word eco-poetry or eco-poetry was used, or even before my awareness of it, I think it was something that was already important to me. I think that I was writing eco-poetry long before I even became aware of the term. And I think that's because growing up where I did in Baguio in the Philippines, in mostly Ilocano household, I was exposed to a lot of folk traditions, stories, beliefs, superstitions, ritual practices even, which kind of impressed upon me. I didn't have these words for it before. It was just a natural part of my upbringing. Uh, This whole outlook of animism, you know, permeates our worldview. We have the sense of a connected universe. So in my family, for instance, uh, we make food offerings to our departed uh, loved ones, and we call that atang. And this is a, a thing from, I don't know how long ago, but it's the idea that you are connected to things you can't see, and that these presences are still able to make themselves felt in the world. We've had nature poetry, but I think that eco-poetry is something that that tries to apply a more honest and maybe more critical lens towards humanity's relationship with nature, towards humanity's relationship with the planet. So rather than present grand scenes of nature unfolding as a backdrop for human activity, eco-poetry strips away the illusion of our only observing status because we are nature, we are in nature, we are entangled in its movements, we are entangled in all of these different changes, and we are only one of so many different species on this this planet. And so uh, we are not necessarily the most important thing in the planet. And I think That's the difference in what people are calling eco-poetry from, let's say, poems that we might simply have called nature poems or poems uh, from the pastoral tradition. I'm uh, remembering a poem by uh, Wendell Berry called The Vacation, where, if I remember it, uh, it, it talks about a man who is filming his vacation. He's in a boat. He has a video camera. I guess he wrote this at a time when he didn't have a a phone. He does not actually have a phone, I think. And uh, he talks in the poem about taking pictures of his vacation in order to preserve forever uh, the river, the trees, the light, the boat. And then he could play it back with a flick of a switch and there it would be. But the last lines of the poem are, but he would not be in it. He would never be in it. Hmm. So... One of the things that I think get from that poem is that idea of our importance in this, what we used to call or what we like to call sometimes the grand scale of things. And we 
done a lot of damage to nature, to this planet. And it's kind of shocking that a lot of people still don't acknowledge that fact. And so for me, poetry is also a way of trying to reach um, maybe more um, readers with this message, which can't be more urgent at this time, because uh, how do they describe it? We're, we're heading towards the midnight point, you know, where there's, there's no plan B. We have to do something now in order to try and save what we can uh, of this world, which we share with others. So I'm wondering, how has your time being Poet Laureate of Virginia, what, what have you taken from the experience that, that you've worked into your writing? What it's shown me through the new connections and uh, other kinds of encounters that I've made, poetry is alive and well. It's not dead. So many young poets are giving me hope for the future. I think what they're showing us is extremely positive. It also shows me that people are turning more to poetry as another way to talk to each other in this time of uncertainty. It hasn't really changed the way I write and I maintain a daily writing practice. So for the last 11 years and some months, I have a daily practice in which I write at least a poem a day. Wow. And perhaps it, what it's done is to make me more intentional and more conscious of the ways in which I can share this work with others. But then I still feel like poetry is my preferred way of kind of processing the information that that the world throws at me. Well, I think this is a good place to take a break. And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Carrie and with Louisa. Carrie, you admitted to me maybe yesterday, that you were in a little bit of a reading slump. So I'm interested to hear about what book wasn't part of your slump that you're going to talk about today. Well, I'm over that slump now, mostly because I DNF two books that I just wasn't feeling. So I just put them aside and said, I'm going to move on. But I'm, I'm actually talking about two books. It's a part one and a part two. There are graphic they're not novels, so they're like graphic nonfiction, but they're called Sapiens, A Graphic History. And there's a part one and a part two. And the author is Yuval Noah Harari, and they're illustrated by David Vandermeulen and Daniel Kassanave. Hopefully I pronounced those correctly. So the book Sapiens, on which these two graphic texts are based, is a nonfiction text that I think he wrote in around 2018. But these books are awesome if you love graphic text, which I do. So book one is about how Homo sapiens became the only species of humans to exist. So originally, as far as they know, there were six. There were six different Homo species. And then for various reasons, some of which we don't fully understand, now there's only one. So all humans are of the same species. They're Homo sapiens. So it was fascinating just because it talks about, you know, why these different species changed and went away. The second book, though, is about civilization and what happened when societies moved from hunter-gatherers to farming. And at least for me, it was pretty mind-blowing. You know, like I was aware, and maybe because it was graphic, you know, so it had the the information, but it also had the illustrations. It 
really had an impact. So while agriculture ensured that people had more food and so they could you know, survive, it also meant that they now started to live in towns and cities and they caught more disease and like a lot more disease. Plus, when they changed from sort of nomadic peoples to to people who lived in static environments, it made it necessary for civilizations to develop. And with that came greater inequality, which I had never really put those together. So, so much of the stuff that civilizations depend on is namely that we all sort of agree to something, whether that's we all agree to a certain belief system, whether that's a religious belief or a political belief. And so one of the things it talked about, it even talked about like the United States Constitution. That's essentially a belief that if you're an American, you know, you're brought up with that belief system. Here's the Constitution and this is what we believe. So The second book that focused on civilizations really made me question what I believe and sort of what these almost like artificial systems have been put on people that they're not even aware that they're part of this system. I don't know. It just made me think about things in a deeper way than I usually do. So if you're a fan of graphic texts, also if you're interested in evolution and and the progress of civilizations over thousands and thousands of years. It was really fascinating. These graphic books mm-hmm. are based on a nonfiction book, a, a nonfiction book. Yes. Yes. Okay. Called Sapiens. And he okay. also has a second book that's called Homo Deus that's about the future of what humanity by, might look like. But these two books are basically like they took the the topics of the nonfiction book Sapiens and broke them into two separate graphic texts. But it's a good way to sort of dip your toe into learning about that. I always like the visual that goes along with it. You know, it's good for me as an adult, but it would also be good for a, you know, middle schooler, a teenager. So very easy to to get into and learn from. Cool. Yeah. Well, Louisa, what have you been reading? Well, I've just finished reading this wonderful memoir called Crying in H Mart. Have you heard of it? Yes, I've read it. It's very, 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 very good. Yes. Did you cry? <laughs> uh, I listened. To, I'm not a big crier. I listened to it on audio uh, oh, okay. and she narrates it. And oh, oh, okay. I would highly recommend that as, as well. But I felt a lot of feelings. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> I felt all the feelings. Definitely all the feels. I think it's a, a wonderful story about the complex relationships of families. Michelle Zahner writes about growing up in Oregon, and I think she was one of a few Asian American kids and uh, what that felt like. But mostly it's a story about her relationship with her mother, who develops cancer. And much of the book is about, you know, seeing her mother struggle with that and how she gives up a little bit of her career at that point to go live with her mother. And they try to nurse her back to health. But it's also a story about family rituals, a lot revolving around food and how to prepare it. And food is a kind of love language, I guess, that they all share in this book. So that, you know, any site of ingredients of food in H Mart, which is like a chain of Asian groceries in in the U.S., just reminds her of her mother and all the different things they used to share. I just love the way that food can kind of tie people together. And so any book that has that in it, I'm not normally a person who likes to read memoirs about cancer, but this one really checked all the boxes for me. 
tips. I'm also starting another book. It just came in the mail, Big Fat Book. It's called Rice, A Pop History of Asian America from the 90s to Now. So that's Rice is in the verb, R-I-S-E. And it is, I guess, co-edited by Jeff Yang, Phil Yu, and Philip Wang. And it's this book that uses the graphic approach, sort of a graphic history to just gather all these bits of information that are so important to completing the picture that we have of Asians in America and where they have come from and how they're faring, how we are using this sort of knowledge about our identity and about all the other things that go with that in order to craft a more aware of our, our own place in relation to current history and hopefully history to come. So it's RISE, R-I-S-E. You said it's big and thick? Yeah, it's a pop history uh, of Asian America from the 90s to now. So it doesn't cover everything, but I think it covers a very important swath of things and the focus is popular culture representations of Asians Asian Americans in popular culture and there's all kinds of ripples of course that that these things connect to so I am thinking it's going to be a very important resource for all of us Mm, sounds very good too yeah well, Amy, you haven't been in a reading slump, but I think you were struggling over what what you were going to talk about. Well, because the book I had planned to talk about, I'm almost done with, but it started out, I liked it, but towards the end, it's like petering out for me a little bit. So I decided I didn't want to talk about that one. So I'm going to talk about another one that I read maybe a month ago called Four Seasons in Rome on Twins, Insomnia, and the Biggest Funeral in the World by Anthony Doerr. And Anthony Doerr is an author of several books, but most famously, his novel, The Light We Cannot See, won the Pulitzer Prize and the Carnegie Medal. And that novel set during World War II, and it's probably one of my favorite books of all time. And he has a new novel out called Cloud Cuckoo Land, which has also got rave reviews, and I'm beating myself up because I still haven't gotten to it yet. But if this is an author that you also really enjoy, you need to check out this little book of essays from his backlist. So Four Seasons in Rome is a book that he wrote prior to publishing All the Light We Cannot See. But it is connected to that book, so hang with me here for a moment. This is a collection of essays sorted by season about a year that Doer spent in Rome on a fellowship so that he could finish writing All the Light We Cannot See. He's from Boise, Idaho, and he sort of received this fellowship to spend a year in Rome on a lark. All the Light is set in World War II era Europe, so I'm sure that he wanted to use this time to explore Europe to better be able to write about it authentically. But it came at a strange time in his personal life because he and his wife, Shauna, had just welcomed a bouncing pair of baby twin boys into their family. But this was a once in a lifetime opportunity. So they moved to Rome in the fall with their infant sons to a small flat. And there are four sections of this book and they correspond with each season. So this book is really about that experience of what Rome was like as a tourist, the wonder he felt at just soaking in all that Rome had to offer, as a parent of very small babies making their first milestones, and as a writer who was suffering from both insomnia and writer's block. 
you can read it like a travel memoir, which I always enjoy. And the parts of being a new parent with babies who won't sleep in this strange city was sort of painful to read. But I can remember what that period was like, both wonderful and torturous all at the same time. And he mentions that they had to separate the twins from one another so that they could sleep and one of them ended up sleeping in the in the small, sweaty bathroom. I could relate to this a little bit because when my kids were babies and toddlers, when we would travel, I would put their little travel crib in a closet if I could because it was dark and quiet in there for them and they seemed to sleep better. So I'm right there with you, Anthony Doerr. But what I appreciated the most was seeing the behind-the-scenes struggles that this Pulitzer Prize-winning author had writing his literary epic and all of the self-doubt he had about his project and whether he would ever finish it. Uh, I read this by audiobook, and I will say that as a listening experience, there were definitely parts of this book that felt like poetry to me. The way he uses repetition and sounds in his writing was evocative and really helped me experience what he was experiencing centrally. And he narrates the book himself, and it's a fairly short book, maybe four or five hours by audio. I'm actually headed to Rome in a few months, and I'm thinking I'm going to buy the physical copy of this book and take it with me to read while I myself am there to help me connect with a writer that I really admire. Very cool. Well, let's take another quick break. And when we come back, Louisa is going to answer her three in the third degree. We are back with Louisa A. Igloria, and she's going to answer our very probing questions. <laughs> so number one, what are some things that you miss most about the Philippines? Well, for sure, the food. I think of fruit like lanzones and atis, caimito or star apple, um, those tiny seaweeds that look like tiny clusters of grapes that pop in your mouth. And of course, I can't find them here. But I guess anyone who has left a place is bound to feel, like me, all kinds of nostalgia for that place. Though, of course, it will never be the same again in one's experience. And I say that because I miss the Baguio of my childhood. And I know it's not like that anymore. The last time I visited was in 2020, right before all of this came down. And of course, I knew it would be different, a lot more traffic, there's a lot more pollution. I remember how all mountainsides that I looked at from wherever vantage point you had was covered in pine trees. But now all I saw were like billboards, lots of new housing, lots of new condominiums and what have you. So that kind of thing, you know, I, I mean, I feel very nostalgic for place, but it's a place that I know doesn't exist anymore. Mm, yeah. For the most part, that's, that's what it is. All right. Question number two. So you are a mom to four daughters. What was the most important thing you tried to instill in them when they were growing up? Hmm. I think among other things, maybe the idea of cultivating and maintaining maybe a sense of openness and possibility. And of course, also the love of reading and writing. And what do you know? They're all writers and artists. <laughs> Success! <laughs> so they must have drank the water, huh? <laughs> yeah, in fact, uh, all of them have published in uh, a journal or anthology, even the youngest daughter. 
Are they all writing poetry or fiction or are some of them writing more like nonfiction journalistic type of things? Mm. All of them, I think, are poets, but the youngest one, she also writes nonfiction. She's been writing essays and she's been saying, I think I like nonfiction more than poetry. I'm like, traitor. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, but they have their own thing. They do their own thing. But yeah, very proud of all of them. So your last question, food is a regular feature on your Instagram page. And I love looking at all the pictures that makes my mouth water. But what is a dish that you make often that is a comfort food for you? I think I would say uh, some of the simplest things like the home cooking things, they're the most comforting things when you want something that will soothe maybe even heal you maybe you're you're you know recovering from a cold or whatever or you just feel like you want something of that nature so some things that I make that fit that requirement of comfort would be uh, I like to make arroz caldo which is basically like a rice it's like congee Mm -hmm. Uh, lots of toasted garlic and ginger Um, I make soups like sinigang which is basically a soup that's flavored with tamarind. So it's got a sour broth as Mm -hmm. the base and you put vegetables and usually uh, the meat of choice is pork, but you can also do a seafood version of that or linaga, which is another soup dish, uh, which is usually in my family, we make it with beef also. And the word linaga simply means boiled, Mm. (laughs) boiled. It's the broth that's so comforting, especially in a cold day, which today is. I think soup is one of the best foods ever. I could eat soup all year long. It's so, Mm -hmm. you're right. It's so comforting and you can, you can put almost anything in it. Like little odds and ends you have in your refrigerator, you can throw it in there and make a great soup. And it comes together so quickly. And it's really very simple. But sometimes those are the most satisfying things. As the non-foodie in this conversation, I even prefer soups just because it's one pot and I can just get her done. (laughs) Exactly. Well, Louisa, thank you so much for joining us and and sharing with us about your role as Poet Laureate of Virginia and all the different projects you have going on. We're excited to look at your website in April and and see some of the postcards that you post. So that's awesome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been so fun talking with both of you. You can find Louisa on Instagram at Poet Lizard. And to see all the poetry postcards and check out the Young Poets in the Community program, go to her website at www.luisaigloria.com. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at The Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there live or in archives at forwardradio.org.